And yeah, I, I became mentally paralyzed. And I think we all do. We all get mentally paralyzed by the fears and the doubts and the justifications that enter our lives. And it keeps us from becoming who we really want to be. It keeps us in our, our safe zone, our comfort zone, instead of pushing out those boundaries. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Nathan Ogden is an inspirational speaker, coach, quadriplegic athlete, and the author of Unfrozen, Superior Systems to Move from Paralysis to Progress. He has spent years motivating and inspiring audience and readers on how to conquer their fears and move forward from paralysis and setbacks to make progress in their lives and in the lives of others. But this hasn't always been the case for Nathan. Nathan's life changed in 2001 when he was skiing and hit a jump, launching himself over 20 feet in the air, landing on his neck, shattering his C7 vertebrae. Nathan was instantly paralyzed and told he would be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. But this prognosis was something that Nathan and his wife, Heather, could not accept. They had too many things that they wanted to do and were committed to walking again and doing whatever it took to get there. But unfortunately, Nathan's adversity did not stop there. During Nathan's recovery, he contracted pneumonia. He went unconscious in the middle of the night and was rushed to the emergency room. While they were getting ready to take x-rays, he fell off the table, breaking his neck a second time. When he woke up a few hours later and Heather told him what happened, the first words out of his mouth were, bring it on. However, after about a month, negative thoughts started to creep in and he began to lose the use of everything from his chest down, which included a considerable amount of what he had worked so hard to recover. And that's what it hit him, that he not only was paralyzed, but he had become mentally paralyzed and he needed to get unfrozen. So in this episode, we are going to cover the steps that Nathan believes that you and I can take, the small but significant steps to get unfrozen in our life, regardless of what we're facing. And even two neck breaks could not stop Nathan for long because he lives by the words that his father passed down to him. Live adventure, don't watch it. This is never more obvious than in his philanthropic work. Nathan and his family created Chair the Hope to raise awareness and money for wheelchairs to be delivered in developing countries. Nathan and his wife and their four children kicked this effort off with a 1,200-mile bike ride which they rode together relay style over the course of 12 days. You can learn more about the Ogden family and their mission by visiting the show notes page where we have links to all of their amazing stuff. Now bust out your pens and paper. Don't be a podcast junkie. Take some notes. Brace for impact. 
Nathan Ogden, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Super pumped to have you. Um, you and I met recently at Kevin Hall's Genshai retreat, and your story, your and Heather's story, your family's story is incredibly inspirational. And you have your book out, Unfrozen. And your story, I know, has already impacted thousands of lives and will continue to. And before we get into your story, I want to know, I always like to start out kind of way back in the beginning and learn a little bit about what my guests were like as kids. So tell me a little bit about, if, if as you reflect back, as you bend back time and go back to your childhood, what, what was it like being a kid? And what did you enjoy doing the most? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited about this and excited to meet you. Uh, oh, what was it late January? So a little over a month ago. But um, I have, well, I'm from Boise, Idaho, and I grew up just outside of the city limits, up in the foothills, just a little. And I I love sports. I love to uh, play any sport that I can get a hold of. Um, I played a lot of soccer. I played soccer in college. I wrestled and did tennis and basketball. I, I loved hunting, fishing, hiking. I love to be doing something. Mm -hmm. um, I like to be pushing myself physically. And um, I just, I guess, adventurous. My dad had always taught us that why would you sit down and watch someone do something when you can go out and do it yourself? Oh, nice. And uh, so that's always been kind of our family motto is go live adventure, don't watch it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I tried to live that. And that's, I guess, how I was. I came with a family of uh, five kids, had an older sister and then four brothers. And so I was the middle child. And so I always had brothers to do things with. Yeah. And so I didn't have to sit and play video games any like a lot of kids do nowadays. We, we were up in the mountains. We had ponds near us to go fishing. And we, uh, I don't know, we just, I had a pretty good, life growing up. I think everyone has their challenges in different ways. But So needless to say, your competitive nature probably comes from the fact that you're a, you're a third child or a middle child. You know, you've got this competitive streak. You're, you've got, you're right smack dab in the middle. You're probably trying to get your voice heard in the noise. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm always trying to compete to be better than my older brother and, and then again, uh, beating up on my younger brothers. <laughs> Yes. Awesome. You know, fast forward, you know, you're in, you're in college, you're done with college, you're a competitive athlete, you've done all of these things and you meet your, your beautiful now wife, Heather. And, um, I'd love to, to learn a little bit about what life was like for you and Heather before you had your injury and, and what, what did you do for work and what did you and Heather believe you were capable of accomplishing? Or did you guys even have like a big vision of what you wanted to do in the future? Uh, I don't know if we had a vision of what we wanted to do, but I, I think we had, if you had to kind of think of the American dream or kind of what you would want a, a young married couple to to live like that was us. I we met my second year of college, and I wooed her into somehow liking me. And so when we got married, we I was going to college full time to get my degree, working full time. I worked for uh, a few different companies, you know, just making ends 
me to try and pay for college. But I ended up working for DHL, the shipping company. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back then, they were a lot larger in the United States. And as I worked with them, I moved up pretty quickly in the company and started off just a driver. And then I got my degree and they promoted me up farther. And then after four and a half years, I was running the operations for the state of Idaho. Um, for everything coming in and out and from the airports to trucks to, to everything. And uh, I was getting ready to be hopefully promoted to moving back to Ohio and running one of the bigger hubs that they had there at 26 years old. So it was going really quick for me. Hmm. Um, we'd bought our first home. Uh, we had two little kids. We had a little girl who was two and a half year old. Her name was Senia and an almost one year old boy named Kyler. Um, I think we, when I look at it that way, we had, we had what we needed. We had the kind of the American dream of, we had our home, we had our family. I had a good job that was looking great. Uh, we got to, my wife's from Bend, Oregon. We had family around that was close enough to visit. And Heather's also very athletic. She's very competitive. I remember once we were playing basketball and we first got married and I was playing with my brothers and she was out playing with us because she's a very good ball player. And you should never do this as a couple. You should never <laughs> cover each other when oh, you're both man, competitive. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was, our, my team, my brother and I were beating her and my other brother. And so I was trash talking her and so she was dribbling the ball up front. And I'm like, come on, you can't get past me. Let's see what you can do. And, she just grabbed the ball, punched me in the face, and then dribbled around me and <laughs> made the layup. But I kind of learned quickly that my place in the marriage is to just shut up and <laughs> let her do what she's going to do. But she's a very strong woman, and we had, we had everything going for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we were healthy. We were strong. No, you, 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 that you had everything going for you, and you probably could have just kept moving and progressing just just as you were and had a really good life but you had this passion for skiing obviously being up in the mountains and you were a risk taker and and so you were visiting heather's family in bend oregon right and and uh that's when the event happened so maybe you could take us back to that day and that moment and kind of what you were thinking and and uh and we can take the story on from there yeah, so I mean, this took place back in 2001, in December 2001, which actually just a few months after 9-11 happened. And due to my job responsibilities with airlines and packaging, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was very stressful. And so I was able to get a week off for Christmas to take a break. We went to my in-laws' house to relax. And three days before Christmas, I... Uh, I did. I grew up snow skiing and I love it. So I got my brother-in-law who was a few years younger than me. And we said, Hey, let's go up to Mount Bachelor. Amazing ski hill, uh, right near that town. And so as we're up skiing, it was fun to be up doing it again. And I'm coming down. I love going off jumps. Um, I love the thrill of flying through the air, but I mean, I don't do backflips and all that, but I, I love to ski. I love to have speed and I, I don't mind wrecking. I think it's fun. <laughs> So when we're, we were coming down our last run before lunch and back then, I mean, nowadays they have the kind of the snowboarding parks, 
um, for that have all the tricks and everything that are up there. Well, back then they just had barely started doing some of that. And I came around this run and I'd never seen it before. And they had a few tricks and then they had a couple of big jumps. And there, after the second jump, there were a lot of people down watching people come off that second jump. And it was lightly snowing at the time. And I could kind of see down to these jumps, but not real clearly. And there was a line of about three or four people waiting to go down. So I, I stopped and my brother-in-law went down with the group to watch. And I, I waited my turn and I, I get my little nudge to go and I flip my skis around. I start heading down the hill, pushing, gaining speed. And I hit the first jump and I didn't hit it hard enough because it's a, it's a jump, a tabletop that you have to kind of clear it. It's like more of a distance jump. Mm-hmm. And so as I came off of that, I realized, all right, the second one looks a lot like that. The first one, I probably got to get a little bit more speed. I've got to hit this thing right in the middle and hit it hard. And so as I came onto that jump, the second I hit it, I knew I was in trouble. Because instead of launching me out like a a normal jump would, kind of up and out, I went almost straight into the air. And... I remember every bit of this, but the, all the people who were watching, they, they said that I got 30 feet into the air, 25 to 30 feet, which is much higher than I'd ever been. And I don't ever want to go that high again, but I slowly rotated backwards and I came down and I landed on my neck Hmm. my body collapsed on top of me. And I, I went flying, just tumbling down the hill, my skis and poles and hat, everything went flying in different directions. And I ended up in the fetal position facing downhill. And my first thought was, I look like such an idiot. I've got to get up. I've just embarrassed myself in front of all these people. This is terrible. So I tried to get up and all I could do is move my elbow just a tiny bit. Mm. No big deal. I just knocked the wind out of myself. We've all done that. So I waited a few moments. I tried to get up again and I could barely move that elbow. And that's when I realized this is bigger than what I thought. And I, I could feel all this pain throughout my body and I was getting harder for me to breathe. And I kept looking at my legs. I'm like, come on, move. You've always moved for me in the past. I've always gotten up whenever I fell. What's going on? But even in, even at that point, I still didn't think I was really hurt that bad. I just figured my body was kind of, going through a shock or a trauma that, you know, give it a couple hours, I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. But so they, they got me off the hill, took me to the hospital. And, uh, that's when I realized after the x-rays, they, they came and told my wife that, uh, I'd shattered my C7 vertebrae and was instantly paralyzed Mm -hmm. and that, uh, most likely I would never walk again. I'd be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. Well, I want to pa- I want to pause there. I want to go back to to, to a few things because sure. I want to I want to try to draw out some insight into a little bit more of of who you are and who you continue to be because you said something a moment ago that you didn't mind wrecking because wrecking was fun. So I want to know what about wrecking is fun. <laughs> and let's start there. What what in your mind like before and even now when you think about wrecking, what what in it is fun and what can you learn or take away from wrecking? Um, I, it's not that I'm reckless. 
I guess that's important to say. I'm not just some guy who doesn't care about what happens to my body. But I mean, because I was competitive, I, I, I was in pretty good shape and I, I, I guess I always bounced back, whatever happened. So when I was skiing, if I wrecked, typically it meant because I was, I was doing something I liked mm-hmm. or I was trying something. I was pushing myself a little bit harder. And so whenever I would wreck, it was more of a, I guess, a symbol of, okay, I didn't get it right that time. Let's get back up. I'm all right. I'll try it again. Hmm. I guess so. It wasn't a, it wasn't a sense of defeat. It was a sense of, all right, I, I can't do that with my ski. Next time I'll get it right. Hmm. Hmm. So I didn't mind it. Mm-hmm. To me, it was still just, it was part of skiing. It's part of life. It was, yeah. Yeah, it's like nobody get, yeah, nobody ever gets down the hill and learns how to ski without falling many times. Mm-hmm. 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 No, so, yeah, it is very much like life. Yeah, I love that, and we'll we'll talk more about that and how you're continuing to live that way uh, today. One other thing that that struck me is like is your thought process as as your brother skis down the mountain and you're up there by yourself, and you're this competitive person. So I'd love to, to know, like, what were you thinking about the jumps and what were you visualizing and what were you telling yourself and what were you imagining the people seeing as you approached those jumps? Wow. That was, that's a good question. That's probably good and bad coming out of that visualization because, um, I hadn't been skiing for a year. I'd been through a lot of stressful stuff with nine 11 and my work. And so it was so fun to just be up skiing again. And uh, there is something fun about flying through the air, even if it's just for a couple of seconds. It's very freeing. It's very, I don't know, it was so exciting to me to do that. Um, But as I was visualizing these jumps, and especially with the people down watching, because I didn't normally have a lot of people watching when I went off things. As I was coming up on that second jump, that confidence that I had in my abilities shifted to, to cockiness. Mm. And that's when I kind of started throwing out my common sense in realizing, hey, instead of slowing down a little bit before I hit the jump, I've never been off this before. I don't really know what it's like. Mm-hmm. I tucked in a little tighter pulled my skis in so I would speed up and hit it instead of hitting it maybe on the side or I just hit it straight on as hard as I could. And I guess there's good and bad from that because a lot of times in life, it's best to just hit something head on Mm -hmm. and go after it, but not if it's reckless. And I think that's where that, that word kind of shifted for me. It wasn't that I was wrecking. I became reckless at that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I put myself in a position to be hurt instead of maybe feeling it out a little bit first. I think that's really powerful. I think that's really, really powerful. What the distinction that you made there, there, there are times when it's appropriate to take things head on. And then there are times when it's not. So, so we, br- we, we come back into your story and, and you've just received this news. What was your initial response when you first heard the words paralyzed spoken to you? I didn't believe it. 
and not the, I guess I, maybe I didn't want to believe it because in my mind, my body's going to be fine. I'll heal. Give me a few weeks. I'll be walking again. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is even after all the x-rays and the doctors coming in and the whole trauma of ambulances and ERs and all these things. I, to be honest, I don't remember a whole lot after being in the ER. I think they put me on some pretty good drugs that I don't, <laughs> I was, I know, I, I guess I woke up, I guess people came and visited me for Christmas. Um, cause this is only three days before Christmas that it happened. And, but I don't remember any of that until it was shortly after Christmas that I started remembering when I came to, and it, that's when I had a, a halo on that screwed into my skull. I had hoses and tubes all over the place. Um, I had a fever they couldn't control and I had a, a tracheostomy. So I had a breathing tube hooked up to my throat. And so I couldn't communicate. I couldn't even talk to my wife. Mm. Um, and that was, that was by far the hardest thing for me is that I couldn't tell my wife it's going to be okay. Mm. I'll be all right. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about you and the kids. I'll, I'll be there to protect you. Mm-hmm. Couldn't talk. All I could do is blink. And that's when it hit me that this is, this may be a little more serious than I thought. Mm. But I, I do remember distinctly that as my wife and I were together, that we both agreed pretty quickly. We're not going to listen to what the doctors say. I was just going to say. That this is, this is not how we pictured our life. It's not me being in a chair. It's not, I, at that point, we didn't even know if I'd live. I may be in a bed the rest of my life as a vegetable. We didn't know. Mm. And so we agreed very quickly that this is not how we want to live our lives. This is not how we pictured it. We have too many things that we want to do. So I will walk again, and we're going to do whatever we have to to get there. Was there a kind of a, a, a switch that flipped where you're like, you went back to your middle child uh, you know, status and, and where you didn't like being told what you could or couldn't do. And, and so that switch flipped back on and you're like, no way, man. Like you say, I can't, I, I can walk. I'm going to do this. Like there's, there's no question. Did that, did you have kind of like a, a, a moment that an impact moment, if you will, where that kind of mindset shifted? Um, to be honest, I almost gave up hmm. within the first week. I was lying in the hospital bed. It was shortly, actually it was the day that my wife first came in and I remember her walking in the room in the ICU. And I, at that point, and I'll try and make this story a little bit shorter, but at that point, I didn't know what I looked like. I didn't even know I had a halo on. I didn't know I was completely paralyzed. And she walks in and she says, Hey, Nathan, I love you. And I said, I love you back. But nothing came out of my mouth because I had a breathing tube in. Mm. So no, no air is going across my vocal cords. Mm. And so she held up a mirror and that's what I could see what I looked like. Even at that point, though, in my mind, I will walk again. You know, I'll get past all this. I'm fine. It'll be hard, but I can beat it. But it was that night after my wife had left to go home, the nurses had left, 
And so I'm sitting alone in this room and I hadn't slept all day. And this breathing tube started to malfunction. And so I wasn't getting the oxygen that I needed. So every breath is getting farther and farther apart. And I kept thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to suffocate in the middle of the ICU, the most watched part of the hospital. And there's nothing I can do. I can't scream. I can't move. I can't pull a wire out. I can't do anything. Mm. And I remember at that point, I, I pictured myself kneeling down next to the gurney and saying a prayer. Mm -hmm. And during that prayer, which was very spiritual, but at, at one point, the feelings came over me that maybe it's better if this machine just stops working and you pass away. Because your wife needs a husband who can stand up and mm -hmm. mow the lawn and provide for the family. And your kids need a dad who can chase them around the park and lift them up in the air and, and teach them how to throw a football. That's what they need. They don't need a dad who can't do that stuff. Maybe it's better if you just quietly pass away tonight. And that was hard. Those are some scary thoughts mm -hmm. because you have this whole life in front of you. I have an amazing wife and family and job and everything. And now all of a sudden, a couple of days later, I'm possibly going to just give it up completely. And it was at that moment that I had this, this feeling inside just burning that, yeah, it's worth a fight. This is it. I want to do this for my wife and kids. That's my purpose, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got to find their, their drive at some point in their life and figure out what that is. I thought I knew what that was. I thought it was always just have a good job, have a good family, have, you know, recreate, do what you like to do and, you know, help people. Don't bug anybody. And that was a great life, but I didn't, I never knew what my core purpose was. Mm. And it was at that moment that I realized what that was. And so I think that was a switch to me. And what is it? What is your core purpose? Regardless of your status of being paralyzed and being in a wheelchair, at that moment, two things. What, what happened that empowered you to quiet those questions that you were in, entertaining? And then what did you realize your purpose is? Because as I've talked, as you and I talked about at, at, at the Genshai retreat, that is, that is my mission in, is to help people claim their purpose. Because I think that's one of the greatest crises that we face it as a human race today is people lack a sense of purpose. And so I'd love to, for you to like spend a minute like identifying okay what 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 was it that you realized that your purpose was for your kids and for the greater community uh, for me at that point at that moment what gave me the drive and that, and that was my drive for the next the next year is that i wanted to be there for my wife and kids that that was my job i signed up for it i earned it and this is for me and so I was going to do whatever I could to make sure that I was the one in those pictures and not Heather's second husband, mm -hmm. that I would be the one to dance with my daughter at her wedding and not someone else. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's what drove me. And 
So my purpose at, at that point and still is today, my core purpose is my family. Mm-hmm. It's to provide experiences and opportunities to be there with them, but also to see them succeed. I want to, I want to see them learn. I want to see them I go on to prom date, but I also want to see him get dumped by a boyfriend and, <laughs> and have the, the sad part of it. I want to, I want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been my drive. And then, but I also think your purpose shifts. Mm-hmm. It, it's going to shift throughout your life. No, I don't think anyone has their one main purpose and that's all it ever is. Mm-hmm. So now it's not just about being there for my family and helping them. It's about also going out and speaking and helping others. Mm-hmm. And so as a motivational speaker and trainer and stuff, that's, that's what I get to do now. It's kind of like I've broadened my purpose into kind of what you're doing is it's uh, you take care of your family, but then I'm, I have a bigger family Yes, absolutely. that, that I'm out working with. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I still deal with a lot of pain. I still deal with, it's, it's not easy being a quadriplegic mm-hmm. and traveling and um, just getting up in the morning and trying to roll over at night. I mean, it's a, it takes me three or four minutes just to roll from one side to the other on my own at night. Mm-hmm. So it's hard, but it's, it gives me something to, to push for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in those hard moments, I can always think back to like yesterday, I was speaking at a, at a company downtown Boise and it's so fun to see others have that epiphany, but like, Oh, I've never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. I really, I need to change something because I'm not really happy. And I need to, this is what I need to do to get there. So that, to me, that's what's exciting. So you, you, you have this epiphany, you're now driven, you're determined that you will walk again. And so take us through that process of, of, of recovery and, and then tell us what happened next. Uh, well, it was, it was very hard. So over the next 13 months, I, uh, I, well, I should say we, because it was my family. I mean, they were helping me along the way. But I got back uh, through a lot of therapy. I got back most of my upper body. My hands were probably at about 90%, but still getting stronger. And my legs were starting to move a tiny bit. Not much. So I'm still, I'm in a wheelchair. I had a truck equipped so that I could drive a big Ford truck because I don't like minivans. <laughs> They tried to put me in one and I'm like, no, I don't want to be in one. You can leave me in the hospital. Don't put me in a minivan. And then they tried to put me in an electric wheelchair. And uh, Heather and I said no to that as well, because the second I get in an electric wheelchair, I'm going to become weaker and I won't live as long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've got, a, I've got a fight for my health. I, the, my job I still had, we had to adjust it a little bit, um, but the company was great working with me. Mm-hmm. So I started working full time again. Um, we still had our dreams as a family. There was all still there. We just had a different way of getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, so our life was getting to be a new normal mm-hmm. once again. And you were pushing yourself. You were you were close, and and then but you were still battling with, you know, your the the ramifications of this injury that extended far beyond just being just being in a wheelchair it impacted your overall health and ability to recover in a multitude of ways. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, my lungs are weaker. 
Um, my diaphragm's not as strong. So just in general, you know, I can get sick easier than you guys. I can get injured a lot easier than everyone else. So mm -hmm. there's certain things that it doesn't matter how hard I try. I'm not getting around it, mm -hmm. but I still believed fully hundred percent that I would walk in again. No doubt in my mind. I may not go play soccer and be running around, but I will walk again. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt. And I believed it would happen within that next year, that second year after I broke my neck. And uh, so that's what I was pushing for wholeheartedly. And then you got sick. And then I got pneumonia. And uh, I went to bed one night and I, Heather wanted me to go to the hospital. And I said, no, just I don't like hospitals. Leave me alone. And I said, let me just go to bed. If I'm still sick in the morning, we'll go in. And during the night, uh, my blood oxygen level dropped so low because of my pneumonia that I went unconscious. They rushed me into the hospital, get me in the x-ray room. They get me up on the gurney. They prop me up in the air a little bit to get a better shot of my lungs. And I'm still unconscious this whole time. And there's just myself and the x-ray tech in the room. And they're getting ready to take the x-rays. And I fell off the x-ray table and broke my neck a second time. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I, I, like I, said, I don't remember that. I was unconscious. But I do remember a few hours later, um, they've got me in a separate room on oxygen trying to get me to wake back up. And it's just a quiet, cold hospital room. And Heather comes walking in. And I couldn't hardly speak at all because of the trauma of it. And she told me what had happened, that I'd fallen off the x-ray table and broke my neck again. And we were going to transport me to a different hospital for surgery. And uh, there's always moments that in your life, you're like watching a movie, you know, and it comes to the climax and all of a sudden the hero says some like amazing, you know, one liner. Yeah. And I've always wondered, would I do that? Would I say the right thing at the right moment? And I believe this was one of those moments because my wife told me that I broke my neck a second time. And the first three words I said to her were not, I love you, but were bring it on. Wow. And to me, that I think it helped me saying that more than it helped anybody mm -hmm. because it helped me realize it's okay. You know what? I've already broke my neck once. I can do this again. I know how to do it. I can get past it. We can do this faster. We can do it better than we did before. And it won't take long and I'll be back to where I was. So uh, that was a key moment, I think, in my life was to say, bring it on. Um, I accept this challenge and let's do it. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. 
Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. Was there any moments in that second time where you felt defeated or you were fighting against the agony of this and, and anger and bitterness? Uh, not for the, about the first month. Um, I was full heartedly, let's, let's go at this. And then I started realizing pretty quickly that I guess it's important to realize here that after the second neck break, I lost the use of my, my hands. I lost the use of my triceps and I lost the use of everything from the chest down. Mm. So I had lost a considerable amount of what I'd worked so hard to get back. But about a month after that, I'm realizing that as hard as I work, the things that I lost again are not coming back. They're not, my legs aren't moving anymore. It's hard. I can't move my arm as good. I can't pick up things because I can't move my fingers. And that's when it hit me. And I became, and I like to call it mentally paralyzed. Because now all of a sudden I have all these fears and doubts that are entering my mind. And I did. I think I really struggled. It's not I think. I know. I became depressed. I, it was hard. Because all these dreams that I'd had of taking my son up and teaching him how to fish up in the mountains and uh, going and running around with my kids and playing sports, with them, all these things that the way I grew up learning things. And I wanted my kids to do that. They weren't going to happen. Or at least they're not going to happen the way I pictured them happening. And yeah, I, I became mentally paralyzed. And I think we all do. Mm-hmm. We all get mentally paralyzed by the fears and the doubts and the justifications that enter our lives. And it keeps us from becoming who we really want to be. It keeps us in our our safe zone, our comfort zone, instead of pushing out those boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. And I, I know, and it took, it was on and off for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was still there. I coached mm-hmm. soccer. I coached all my kids' soccer teams in a wheelchair, uh, which is not easy to do, <laughs> teaching little kids how to kick a ball when you can't show them. But I went to concerts. I, I went on dates with my wife. We did, we traveled. We, so we did things, but I don't know if I was really there, mm-hmm. like really, really present like I should have been because I was still struggling with myself. Um, every time I went to go do something, I would think, well, I mean, it's all good, but I would rather have it a different way. Mm-hmm. And so I never fully enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And that was, that's terrible. That was not just robbing me of the memories. I was robbing everyone else of being the dad or husband that I should have been. Hmm. How did you, what exercises mentally or emotionally did you go through to kind of break out of that mental paralyzation? Now, one thing, and not everyone deals with this, but one thing I was on, a, I, have, I deal with a lot of nerve pain, mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of nerve pain. And so there was a medication that I was on that, that helps with nerve pain, but it also is a antidepressant. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was kind of making my personality just blah. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't laugh, I, but I didn't cry. I was just kind of there. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that I've got to get off that, that I would rather deal with more pain than, and be present than to just stay where I'm at at status quo. 
So I got off that medication and then I started putting different, different parameters on myself mm-hmm. that if I was going to progress in life, I needed to, I needed to do certain things. Mm-hmm. And for me, I just a couple of simple ones. I think everyone should do this. If you're depressed in any way, or you feel like you're stuck, you've got to, you've got to do a couple things. Number one, you've got to put a name to what you're feeling. So if it's that you feel anxious or you're depressed or you're sad or you're angry, whatever it is you're feeling, put a name to it. And then you can start dealing with it. But then I started saying that there's certain things I need to do that'll make me feel good about myself during the day. So it would be, number one, for me, I needed to read my scriptures every day, even if it was for a couple of minutes. I needed to, I could not watch TV, get on social media. I couldn't look at my phone until I had um, done something to help another person. That uh, that needed to happen first, that I put others before me. Mm. And then that always gave me a sense of confidence that I've done something good for the day. And then I would go in and I could start working on my life. Uh, but it wasn't easy. It it took it took a while to get back that confidence, mm. to get back that drive that I needed. And uh, I felt terrible. But I also, and Kevin Hall says this all the time. I don't know who came up with it, but um, that comparison is the thief of all joy. Yeah, Theodore Roosevelt. Okay, and it that is so true. I would compare myself to other people who were quadriplegics or who were paralyzed. And some of them were successful and out doing things and whatnot. And I kept thinking, well, why can't I be like that? Why am I not like that? I, I, that's how I used to be. That's what my personality was like. Why, why is it now? Why have I changed? And uh, mm-hmm. I have learned and I still do it today, but uh, I got to quit comparing myself to others and just be the best that I know I can be. And uh, that's good enough. What's the most surprising thing you've learned about yourself in this whole process? Like, or the most, like, not even necessarily surprising, but <laughs> where you almost impressed yourself. <laughs> I, I will go two things on that. One of the, one of the biggest things I've learned is that I have a lot of weaknesses mm-hmm. that I'm not, I'm not as strong as I, I don't want to say the word perfect or, you know, there is no Superman. Mm-hmm. everybody has weaknesses and uh i would have never ever in a million years would have admitted that i had i've been someone who's been depressed mm-hmm. that's not me I, that's not who i am mm-hmm. um but i've had to learn that yeah i i have been that way mm-hmm. um i think the one of the things on the positive side of it is that uh I've been able, I've, I've done some really cool things as a, as a quadriplegic. I mean, I've been skydiving. I've been rappelling off a 150 foot cliff. I've, uh, I've been snow skiing again. I've been rafting down rivers. I've, I've done so many amazing things. I've even done a half a triathlon. I mean, who, obviously I didn't run, but I, <laughs> I did bike that portion. But who would think you'd go out and I could I could swim that distance on my own? I mean, it's I've done some really cool things that I I didn't think 
I could do as a quadriplegic. Bike 1,200 miles and along the California coastline to raise money for a bunch of people that couldn't afford wheelchairs. We'll talk about exactly. that in a minute. What is the, obviously, you know, the, the relationship between Heather and you has, has become 10 times stronger than, than it was even before all of this stuff, because it has to, because you're, you're forged by adversity. What have been the most surprising things that have come out of this in terms of your relationship and how has it made you guys stronger? What's been the fruit of this in your relationship with each other? I think we had a guy come to us uh, about two months after I broke my neck. He came into the hospital to talk to us and he had been paralyzed, um, but he could walk pretty good now on his own. And he came in and the very first thing he said to us was, I just want you guys to know that you're going to get a divorce. So just plan on it. And I don't remember anything else he said, but I was so burned up. that Why would you say that? Now, statistically, that is true. That through major physical ailments and things like that, most couples don't make it. But I... Heather and I are stronger than we've ever been. Now, that doesn't mean it's always been that way. We've had our, it's not easy. Um, your, your relationship has to change so much when it, it adjusts that way because she has so many more responsibilities now and, uh, than what she did before. And there's certain things I can help with and I can't. And we've had to readjust how that works. I mean, think about it on a, on a physical level is I don't get to stand up. I don't get to come in from work and give my wife a hug and be a little taller than her. Um, I don't get to pick her up when she falls asleep on the couch and carry her in and put her to bed. Uh, We don't get to just sit by each other because I'm in a chair most of the time. And so there's a physical side that is not there anymore. And that's a struggle to kind of have that. But I will say this, that the word easily, the one word, and it should be in every marriage, but the one word that's gotten us through all of this is communication. Mm. If we can talk it through, if we can be honest with each other and just say, hey, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going through. How can we work this out? Um, then at least I know what I'm working with or she knows what she's working with. Mm-hmm. And it still may be hard, but at least we know what we're doing. It was the times in our, our marriage, it was the times when I was too prideful to admit that I needed help. And I didn't want to give up my own sense of pride that uh, that's when we had the toughest times in our marriage. I was just struggling with it. And I think she didn't know how to help me because I'm not sure I knew how to help myself mm-hmm. and I'm trying to figure it out. But instead of letting her know and opening up so that we can do it together, mm-hmm. um, it pulled us apart. And there was, there's, I don't like to admit it, but there's times that we were on the verge of falling apart, mm-hmm. but we I, I married an amazing woman and we, I'm not going to give that up if I, if I can do anything yeah. about it. She's fierce. You can see it in her eyes, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm scared yeah. of her. <laughs> you know, the, um, I heard it recently 
I was listening to a, a podcast and I and the guest, I forget what his name was, but he said that at the end of every disagreement, the one thing that every disagreement shares is that it's rooted in fear, basically. And so if you have a disagreement, fastest way to re- resolve that is to ask the other person, what is it that you're afraid of? And as it relates to whatever that thing is that you're confronting, which I thought was a really powerful and honest way to to handle challenges and, and difficult conversations. And as I was preparing for this interview, I was looking at different articles and things that had been written about you. And there was one back from from 2015 that had been written about your story. And there, you made a powerful statement. And and I love it. And it says, I can't choose to move my legs, but I can choose to face my fears. And so can you. And I love that. It's just like, oh, I was like, yes, 100%. I was like high-fiving you virtually uh, when, I, when I read that. And so I'd love to know, how has your relationship with fear changed? And what is the most courageous thing you've done Post injury, I love what you were. What that part? Whoever said that? I love it. There, that's a cool thing to do. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that whenever I have a disagreement with my wife or my kids. Yeah, what is it? Else. I think that's a great way of looking yeah. at it. Mm-hmm. Um, fear to me is everything, and it's it's usually it's not just fear. We use fear as a big word. Usually, what gets us is the fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. It's the what ifs, you know, if only I would have, um, what if I had, and, uh, I, I think for me, one of the biggest things right now, and, and that's what I talk about when I speak it, uh, to people in companies or executives, whatever it is, that's what I talk a lot about is our excuses, our fears, our justifications, and how, how do we recognize them and how do we overcome them? It, and it's funny because because I've said this stuff enough, my kids will now play it back on me. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, dad, you're just using that as a justification. So come on, let's go. You mm-hmm. can't. And so they're, they're using my own stuff against me. But I think for me, uh, when it comes to fear, I have to learn to take it kind of like that jump. Mm-hmm. And it is one of those things that I have to be a little cautious with, mm-hmm. but I still want to hit things head on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, have, I still struggle with sometimes self-worth of, am I worth this? Mm-hmm. And can I do this? And can I make it big enough? Do people even really care? Why would someone want to listen to me? Mm-hmm. You know, why would someone want to hear a podcast by Nathan Ogden? Mm-hmm. What, what good do I have to say? Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, we all have so many powerful things to do. So my fears right now is, uh, can I make a big enough difference in the world? Mm-hmm. And I keep telling myself, which is wrong. You know what, Nathan, I don't know if you can do it. It's for someone else to do. Mm-hmm. You can still make a difference, but not on a huge scale. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that I guess you're asking me what is one of my biggest things that uh, that I've done. Well, I'm gonna just say this is that's one of the biggest things I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I'm facing is I want to I want to be 
bigger, not in the sense of a prideful look at Nathan type thing, but I want to, uh, I want to make a change. I want to help people on a scale that I've never imagined. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to blow it out of the water. And, uh, so I'm going to hit that next jump and I'm going to hit it hard. Yes. This time I'll be a little more prepared for it when it comes. Yes. And I love it because there is a very distinct difference between courage and confidence and courage is, is stepping out into the unknown, not entirely sure of what the next step is, what the, what the next thing is going to happen. And, you know, you're without even knowing it, you're answering this. When I coach people about facing fear and even myself, it's, I always ask myself this one question, what's at stake. And that answers everything. And I always, when I give talks, I use the story of David versus Goliath and specifically specifically more more about David and, and the things that he had to face in a very short period of time before facing off Goliath. And, you know, he had been anointed king. He had to face naysayers like his brother. He had to take off other people's armor so that he could step fully into who he was created to be and execute his skills according to how he was created, not how someone else said he should be created right and he had to use the 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 weapons that were readily available to him not some other weapon that you know somebody else said he could use and then he had to ask himself what is at stake and when you realize it there's a very reliable statistic two out of two people are going to die someday right as one of my mentors says to me (laughs) And it's a very reliable statistic. So that being said, you know, yeah, you know, David went and faced Goliath and was there a probability that he could have died? Yeah. But the risk of the alternative of the entire Israelite race being wiped off the the map by the Philistines was even greater, right? So Mm -hmm. it was was a really, it's a really profound question. And then talking about Goliath, you know, modern historians teach that that uh, Goliath was this nine foot giant who actually had the reason he was nine feet tall is because he had a disorder. He was he had a genetic disorder that made him one of the a giant who actually couldn't do anything. He was more of a figurehead than an actual warrior, and they you know propped him up there with the knight with a shield, right? And they had to have other people around him to hold him up. And he was blind and he actually couldn't see you. So if if Goliath is the personification of fear and our fear can't see us, what is it that we're afraid of? We're afraid of what we're making up in our head, you know? Yep. And that conversation. And and you guys are are facing things head on. And one of the things that you did recently was in the process of realizing uh, how expensive it is to receive the kind of care and the chairs that, that you guys work, you realize that there are people not only in our country, but in third world countries that, that just simply cannot, don't have the means to, uh, to have the chairs that they, that can help them live life uh, in, in crescendo, as Stephen Covey says in their, in the, in their own way. And so you guys created 
you and Heather and your family created an organization called Share the Hope, where you did a 1,200-mile bike ride from Bend, Oregon, down to Santa Monica. How did you guys come up with this harebrained idea? <laughs> hey, well, real quick, what I, I love what you were talking about with David and Goliath. Is uh, I mean, that's some great, great stuff there. But I, when you were talking about the tool that he had or the weapon that he gets to choose, um, he didn't. What I love about that is it's not that he's like, okay, Goliath's got a big sword. All right, I'm gonna have to have a sword that I'm that I can that's not too heavy for me that I'll be able to use. Um, he picked what he was comfortable using. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a sling with some with some stones. Mm -hmm. So most people would have grabbed a sword. I've got to have something that's sharp and big and that'll do damage. Where a lot of times in life, if we just take what we're good at, what we're comfortable using, and then maximize that, mm -hmm. instead of trying to be who we're not, just be who you are. Yep. And so I love that. And so that's exactly what we did here is uh, when we're creating this, uh, my wife actually came to us it's a, a year ago this month in March. She came to our family and uh, said, there's something I want us to do. And we're all sitting there. Okay, what is it? And she said, I want us to ride. I want us to raise money for wheelchairs for people in other countries. But I want us to ride bikes for 1,200 miles from Bend, Oregon, where you broke your neck, down to Santa Monica here in Los Angeles. And it kind of goes with my, my book, Unfrozen. And that's what I talk a lot about is how to, how to take that, that mental paralysis of being stuck and frozen and slowly thawing your life out to where um, you're able to do and achieve all that you want to. And so we started in the snow and we were ending at the beach. <laughs> it's kind of symbolic also in that way. How many bikes did you own when you guys decided to do this? We owned three bikes and two of them had flats. <laughs> so I did have a bike. It's a hand cycle that I'd used when I um, did a half triathlon, but I, it's mostly sat in the garage. I, to be honest, I don't enjoy riding the bike that much. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. Um, I mean, I can be going downhill and if I stop pedaling, I'll stop. <laughs> I mean, it's, it does not flow well. But so, yeah, we're, we're not bike riders. We're, we're, we have athletic kids and we had some bikes and they're good at it. If they get on a bike, they can do whatever they want. But we're not bike riders, especially not road bikes. Mm -hmm. None of us have ever been on a road bike. Mm -hmm. So this was new to us and not only new to us with bike riding. So we had to train and do all this. And when Heather came to us, we only had a few months till summer. So we had about three and a half months from when she came up with the idea to when we were going to do the bike ride. We didn't have bikes. We didn't know who we were going to partner with. We didn't have sponsors. We didn't logistics. We didn't know anything that we were doing. So this was a huge endeavor. And that's how my wife tends to work is, well, let's just do it now. And I'm more that, well, wait a minute, let's think this through. Mm -hmm. And I usually lose. So we did it now. And uh, man, what a cool, amazing, exciting opportunity this was not just for my family but for the people who will receive wheelchairs because mm -hmm. of it mm -hmm. now your entire family did this thing from your oldest child who's how old's your oldest daughter she was uh, 18 at the time 
And your youngest is was 10. So, and she rode a road bike on highway one at one point herself. I mean, like it's, oh, yeah. everybody did this thing. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Our little 10 year old is riding like 15, 20 miles up steep hills and down and on these skinny little roads. And it was, it was a little hairy. What was their mindset? What did you guys talk about? How did you guys pump yourselves up to, to tackle this day in and day out for 1200 miles? Um, there are a couple things that we did. Uh, I guess the, the main, the main thing out of the whole deal is we took it off of us as parents mm -hmm. and we put it onto the people who would be getting the wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. And so we put pictures all throughout that we had a camper trailer that we pulled that we stayed in the whole time. And we put pictures all throughout that of people who receiving wheelchairs, little kids without legs that or somebody who had lost it in a mine, a landmine and lost a leg or a limb or just born with spina bifida, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. We put that throughout the trailer. We, some, some of them even had little pictures on their bikes. Mm -hmm. So when it got hard, it wasn't mom and dad are making us go on this 1,200-mile bike ride along these dangerous roads. And it's, it's summer break. I'd rather be home with my friends. That and I, it, I don't know how to put it this way. Except I'll give you a quick example: is my daughter, my oldest daughter. She had to ride uh, thirty miles one day. She'd gone twenty-five miles, and it was a lot. It was a hard ride, and the last five miles were uphill, a very steep uphill down in the redwoods of California. And she, she started into this, and she got about four miles into it, and I could see she was. I was driving a truck to pick her up. And I could see she was just exhausted. And I pulled over and I said, Hey, Sen, you know what? Just get in. I'll get someone else to ride that last mile. And she said, no, I committed to, to ride this far. I will ride this far. Hmm. I said, all right, I'll meet you at the top. So I rode another mile and I waited for her. <laughs> and when she got there, she was crying. She was, could barely walk. And she got in the back of the truck and fell down. And I said, Senia, what? how did you do that? What pushed you? And she said, dad, I have never been so physically drained, so mentally tired and spiritually frustrated. He goes, I was talking to God saying, what, what am I doing? Why, why should it, why am I here? This is so hard. She goes, my legs are so numb. I didn't think I could pedal another turn. And and she said, Dad, what got me through it was I would picture those kids getting a chair and changing their life forever. Mm. And mm. that's what made me do it. And as a parent, I thought that is, that's exactly how it is. Mm -hmm. That's how it should be. It shouldn't be me making them do stuff. In a company, if you're the owner of the business and you have a vision for your business, you want your employees to buy into the, your vision. Mm -hmm. But they need to understand. They need to feel why they need to have some skin in the game mm -hmm. and then you get to sit back and you just get to help coach and be there mm -hmm. you don't have to drag them you're just there to help help push along mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh what are the to me that was one of the neatest things and i also uh we did a lot just with our family mm -hmm. we made sure we went to the beach and played together we made sure we did other fun things along the way that that kept us in a tight-knit group mm -hmm. and nobody 
it was the most amazing thing is nobody for that 12 days that we were riding, there was never a complaint. Hmm. The four kids never were teasing each other or made fun of each other. There was an arguing. Um, everyone got along great. Hmm. But that 13th day after we were done, it started up again. <laughs> like every family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it was amazing. There was a, such a focus and a drive. Yeah, that it was a bond that uh, was you couldn't stop it. Have you had the opportunity to deliver some wheelchairs yet? Uh, we have not. In two weeks, we will. Okay. okay, cool. We fly out in two weeks to head to Mexico. What are you most looking forward to? I am most looking forward to watching my kids help others, lift them up, and put them into wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. Um, talking to them the best that they can and just being in a, uh, in that whole experience, mm-hmm. the atmosphere to be in these poor communities that have been devastated by earthquakes more than it is for me. I'm so excited to see them mm. be a part of it mm. because this will change their lives and it'll help them be more service oriented throughout the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, Nathan, this has been an incredibly powerful conversation and and such a joy to have you on and um, and to know you and Heather. And I look forward to continuing to build our friendship. I always conclude uh, our conversation with with three questions. But before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity to let people know how they can connect with you. Where can they find more about Share the Hope? Where can they get the book, et cetera? Uh, yeah, pretty quick. Just Nathan Ogden about anywhere. So NathanOgden.com. Um, it's also on Facebook, whatever. Uh, there'll be some cool stuff we're going to do a lot about. We have a film crew coming with us on this trip to, to video all that's happening. So we're going to send out little video clips of our Mexico trip. My book is on the website. You can get it on Amazon, but same price you get on my website and I'll send you a signed copy. And then sharethehope.com is also where we're, we run that. And I'm, uh, we're really excited about what the future holds here. We've been able to raise $75,000 in the last year wow. for, for these wheelchairs. So that's, that's 660 something people that their life will now be changed forever. That's so amazing. Uh, that's so cool. That's so cool. It's so cool. So now for the, the, the last, the final three questions that I ask of every single guest uh from uh from from anywhere regardless of of what they're doing i ask these same three questions so if you can pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower what would it be i've never thought of that before i think it would be just kindness Mm. Mm. Um, and maybe that's not like the coolest superpower no no, but it's just it's being genuine and caring about others. Um, I don't think anyone who, I, I hope, I don't think anyone who meets me ever thinks that I have a hidden agenda. Mm-hmm. I'm just honest. I care about them. And I think people really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. 100%. You know, the, uh, the next question is, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from performing at our full potential? You're not worthy. I think that you don't have any fears, that you don't have any uh, anything holding you back, that you've got it all put together. And 
that you're better than someone else. Hmm. I love it. That's powerful. That's powerful. I totally, especially the first one, I believe that before you can even believe that you're capable of accomplishing something, you have to believe you are worthy of of accomplishing something. True. You know, I totally totally believe that. The last question, it comes from the title of a book that I read. There's this really, he's a Harvard business professor. He's written, you know, some of the, some great books. One of which is, is the title of this question. And that is, how will you measure your life? I will measure my life by how I've positively affected others. And I don't know if that's very easy to figure out, <laughs> but, uh, and it's not how many people I've been able to affect, but it's just how I have, have I done enough? So that, I mean, you hear that, that when, when someone, when you have a conversation with someone and, and you separate and they leave, how do they feel about themselves? Because they just talked with you. Mm. And, uh, I guess that's how it is. I want to be that person that that they feel special because they were around me. Man, I, I love that. And I always tell people that you can leave people, when you encounter another human being, you can leave them in one of three ways. Either no change, that you had a very superficial conversation and, and nothing happened and it was high goodbye. Or you could actually ruin their day. <laughs> or, yeah. or the third way is you could have an impact in them that could potentially change the trajectory of their life and therefore the lives of everybody else that they encounter. And I hope that we all have the opportunity through our life for the third one. So that takes effort though. It does. It does. It takes intentionality. You have to actually try to do it. It takes intentionality. You got to be intentional. You got to be thoughtful and, and you have to be forgiving of yourself also because we're human. We, we fail. We, we, we don't, we don't always bat a thousand and sometimes we have bad days and we need to forgive ourselves and, and give us the freedom to get back up and try again. And you are certainly doing that. You are certainly an impact entrepreneur who is really working hard to have that third effect in the lives of others. And I want to thank you for, for taking time out of your morning to join us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Hey, I'm awesome. Very honored to be here. And everyone keep listening to this guy because he knows what he's talking about. And uh, um, he's making a difference in lives too. So thank you for having me on. I accept and receive that. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.